Well, let's, as we come to the word of God, let's bow together in the word of prayer, asking for the Lord's assistance. Oh, Father, we pray that you have been pleased with our worship so far this morning. Our hearts are full with gratitude and love for you, for all that you have done. And now we come to your word and we want to plumb the depths of it. We want to know all that you have given to us in the scriptures for they are life and health and peace for us. So I ask that you would please help us to put distractions aside, distractions that even rise within our own hearts, things upon our minds, our calendars, and I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be able to set our minds upon Christ in whom our life is hidden. We ask this in his name, amen. Well, if you've uh, been with us so far in the month of August, you know that we're doing a short mini-series here on union with Christ through this month. Last week, we looked at how our union with Christ is a shorthand way to talk about our salvation, that it is through our union with Jesus that we are saved. We talked about justification, our adoption into the family of God, our forgiveness, all these things come to us because we are united to Jesus. And if you've been with us, there might be a lingering thought in your mind that says, you know, that's great that all those things took place in the past. We talked about how we were chosen in Christ by the Father before the foundation of the world. So we're talking about eternity past. And then we looked at what Jesus accomplished in his death, burial, and resurrection as he walked upon this earth in the first century AD. That's past as well. And then we looked at how the Spirit applies that salvation to us and that is part of our own history that we believed some time ago, whether that was yesterday or whether that was 20 years ago, it's part of the past. And so there can be this question that says, okay, so union with Christ in my past and salvation, I get it, that's great. But is there, does union with Christ have anything to do with the here and now? Does it carry on, does it have implications for today, for my everyday? And these are valid questions. It's true that it does deal with our past, but as I hope to show demonstrably this morning that union with Christ, being united to Jesus, is extremely practical for our Christian lives. It's not just an abstract piece of doctrine that excites theologians, but is uh, extremely relevant for our spiritual lives and is therefore key to our everyday. And so I want to do this this morning by showing you three ways that union with Christ intersects our everyday lives. Three ways that this great theological truth that we've been looking at, union with Christ, how it aligns and, and is, intersects our everyday lives and our, and our daily Christian life. So let's look first of all that at this first way that union with Christ affects your daily spiritual life. First is that because you are united to Christ, you can daily commune with God. Because you are united to Christ, you can daily commune with God. 
It's because that we have union with Christ that we can have communion with God. We have a living relationship with the triune God because we've been fused together with the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. In other words, communion flows from union. One Puritan, one Puritan said it this way, he said, union is the ground of all our comfort and privilege that we have by the Lord Jesus Christ. Our communion springs from our union with him. It's only because we're united to Jesus that we can commune with Jesus. Now to commune with God that I'm using here and that we talk about in the Christian life, to commune with God it simply means to have fellowship with him. It describes an action of a relationship that takes place over time. Not just that which established the relationship. You could say that our union with Christ is what established the relationship. Our communion with the triune God is what takes place over the course of our relationship with God. And you can think about this in relation to a husband and wife in marriage. A husband and wife established the relationship formally and officially at the wedding. Their relationship is a union bound by a covenant. There's a place in time in which that begins. And this then is the basis of their relationship. But it's not the sum total of the relationship. The relationship doesn't end there at this commitment on the wedding day. No, the relationship goes somewhere. It develops. The two persons share more of themselves over time. They give more and more love to each other. They receive more and more love from each other. They talk and converse. They share dreams and hopes. They disclose heartbreaks and losses. They grow in their knowledge of one another. They grow in their trust of one another. They grow in their delight of one another. This, and so thus, their relationship that was established by covenant at the wedding day develops and grows as they commune with each other in relationship. And the same is true in our relationship with God. When we believed upon the name of Jesus to save us, we were united to him by faith. We looked at that last week. And that's when the relationship to the triune God began. But it did not end there. In other words, our salvation is not just something in which we needed to get our card punched or stamped and say, sweet, our future is secure. We got our eternal future figured out and now we can carry on with life because I, I went through the door, I got my card punched and now I'm stuffed that back in my pocket and I'm good to go. You know, some people treating salvation this way can treat uh, the relationship with God like they do the relationship with their insurance agent. Nothing against insurance agents, but... They, you know, people recognize the danger that's out there and the things that are, the, the, the risks that are to their, their life and, and families and, and uh, portfolio and all the rest. And so would they act with urgency to get their affairs together in the event that something should happen. But once those papers are signed and the insurance is, is, is secured, they resign that thought of insurance to the back of their mind and they carry on with their normal life not hoping to think about it again and hoping that none of those drastic events take place. And so people can do the same thing spiritually. That they, there's an urgency to deal with their, themselves spiritually, to deal with their eternal future. And they believe in Christ so that they make sure that they're, they're set for heaven. They know where they're going when they die. 
They deal with it. But then, after they feel like they've dealt with that crisis, it begins to fade into the back of their mind. It no longer has a very present urgency to them. But friends, the New Testament, God's word does not know of a faith like this. Faith in Christ results in not just a secured future or future residency in heaven one day, it results in a relationship with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's a relationship that is so intimate that words struggle to express it. Jesus said that all believers are in the Son and in the Father, John 17, 21. Paul echoed these same words in, in 1 Thessalonians 1 saying that the gathering of believers in Thessalonica, the church there, were in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Father, in the Son. But not only are we in God, the Father, and in the Son, but then John says that if we believe in Jesus, then God abides in us. 1 John 4, 15. And Jesus said in John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. So we are in the father and the father is in us. We are in Christ and Christ is in us. The spirit likewise we know is in us. 2 Timothy 1, 14. And we are in the spirit, Romans 8, 9. And so the, the New Testament is full of these descriptions of what we'd call mutual indwelling. That we're in God and God is in us. Mutual indwelling. And this is the way the New Testament describes a relationship that is unparalleled in its intimacy and in its unity. Again, words struggle to describe. You go, what does it mean that I'm in God and God is in me? It's describing a closeness and an intimacy that is hard to fathom. And so this means, friends, that as a Christian who's been united to Jesus, we have an unparalleled, intimate relationship with the God of the universe. It's amazing. And it's a relationship that you can enjoy and participate in every single day. He's a God that you can commune with at any moment and every moment. And yet, I think if we were to be asked how often do you commune with God? We'd struggle to find, to know how much do I actually spend with him? How much do I actually enjoy that relationship with God? I believe that in our world today, Christians can often neglect this habit of communing with the Lord. There could be a lot of reasons for this. But I think one of the reasons, at least in terms of our own heads and the, the ways that we view God can affect how we spend time with him or whether we do spend time with him. And I think too, more often than not, God is viewed more as a sergeant to be obeyed than he is a God to be enjoyed. God is viewed as a sergeant to be obeyed than a God to be enjoyed. And this happens because Christians forget or they skip over the statements in the scriptures about God's character and what he has done and they jump strictly to the commands. What has God told us to do? Okay, I'll go do that. Ten commandments, right? We, we know what we've got to do. 
In other words, we skip over the indicatives and go right to the imperatives. And just think of this in a human relationship. If the, the statements about who God is and what he's done for us were all were, were, were neglected and we simply went to the imperatives, think of taking that into a human relationship. If a child only knew of what their father wanted of them but never heard any affirmations of relationship. That relationship is, is meager at best. It would be merely really a legal one. What do you want me to do? Okay, I'll do it. But other than that, there's no relationship beyond that. And the same can be true for Christians who neglect the declarations of God's love for his children. If we don't see God's love for us in the gospel, then our relationship with God will grow cold, our desire to spend time with him will wane, and it becomes a transactional relationship. God saved me, great, thank you, okay, I'll obey you. We're good, right? The Puritan John Owen, in his book, Communion with God, pinpointed why Christians neglect this rich fellowship and communion with the Lord. Listen to what he says. He says, the father loses the company of his people because they are so ignorant of his love to them. The father loses the company of his people because they are so ignorant of his love to them. In other words, there is a direct connection between my grasp of God's love for me and my communion with him. When I'm filled with the knowledge of his love, my communion with him is rich. When I'm forgetful, my communion with him is anemic. In that same book, Communion with God, John Owen gives some steps to cultivating our communion with the Lord. I want to share those with you. He says, first, how do we cultivate this communion? How do we push past this, uh, this anemic fellowship that we can have or that we can neglect? He says, first, you must see his love for you. You must see his love for you. Owen writes this. He says, let us then see the Father as full of love to us. Do not see the Father as one who is angry, but as one who is most kind and gentle. Let us see the Father as one who from eternity has always had kind thoughts toward us. It is a complete misunderstanding of the Father that makes us want to run away and hide from him. And so, friends, we must look and see the kind-hearted nature of the Father. We must see the love that he, is, he has for us. We neglect it, we forget it, but we've got to gaze upon it regularly. Otherwise, if it fades into the back of our minds, so will our communion with God fade. But the list love that the Father has for us is revealed throughout the scriptures and we can't forget it. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5 says, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. It's in love that the Father predestined us. Well, you know Romans 5 verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. God 
shows his love in the context of this verse. It's the Father that shows his love because he sent his Son, Christ, to die for us. He demonstrates his love. He puts it on display in the giving of his Son. Or think of 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, where John writes, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. See or, or behold what kind of love the Father has given to us. We're to look upon it. We're to see it. We can't lose sight of the love of God for us in Christ that we should be brought into his family. It's an established fact. Jesus, as he was speaking to his disciples the night he was betrayed in the upper room, he highlights the Father's love for his disciples and for us as well. In John 16, verses 26 and 27, he says, I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Do you see the intimacy of what Jesus is sharing to his own people? He says, listen, I don't have to plead with God to love you because the Father himself, listen, I know his heart and the Father's heart is that he himself loves you. He's not disposed against you and that I have to somehow convince him to love you. It's already bubbling out of the Father's heart. John 14, verse 23, verse we've read already, but he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and he will come to him and make our home with him. The father loves us. Believer, do not forget, do not lose sight of this love that God loves you through Christ. This comes to us because we are united to his son. We receive it because it comes through Christ. John Owen again says this. He says, in the pouring out of his love, that is the father's love, there is not one drop that falls on us except through Christ. The holy anointing oil was all poured out on the head of Aaron and from there went down to the skirts of his clothing as described in Psalm 133. He says this, so love is first poured out on Christ and from him it flows down to us. The father is delighted in his son, his beloved son with whom he's well pleased. You'll remember the words at his baptism and his transfiguration. That love is then poured down to us through Christ. So believer, don't lose sight of this. God's love for you in Christ. Don't forget it. Make sure you see it for all that it is. But we can't just behold it. We can't just see it from afar. We've got to do something. We've got to act upon it. And that's the second step that John Owen gives us. First is to see his love for you. Secondly, receive his love by faith. Secondly, receive his love by faith. How do we commune with him? We've also got to receive this love. You must believe that this is true of God's heart, not just in a general way, but it's true toward you. The, his, your name is upon his heart. Because if you don't believe, you don't receive it by faith and say, yes, this love is for me, his love is for me specifically, 
then you'll never enjoy the sweetness of communion with him until you receive it. Owen again says this, he says, you must then continually remind yourself that God loves you and embraces you with his free eternal love. When the Lord is, by his word, presented as a father who loves you, then think about it and accept it. Then embrace him by faith and let your heart be filled with his love. Take it in and say, yes, that love is for me. It's God's love for me. So we see his love, we receive it by faith, we believe it is true for us. And then third, the third step to our having communion with him is that we love him in return. We love him in return. God has loved us, we receive it by faith, and then it sparks and spurs our love to go back as an offering to the Father. Owen again wrote this, he says, let the love of the Father stir you to love him also. Then you will walk in the light of God's face and have holy communion with your Father all the day long. As we see his love for us, we take it in, we receive it, and then we want to offer our love back to him. Our hearts swell with gratitude. We realize all that God has done for us and we love him for that great work of redemption that he worked for us. We love him because he first loved us. And so we love him with all of our heart and we love him with all of our soul. We love him with all of our mind and with all of our strength because he has done everything for us. And so we give our all back to him. We love him not out of cold duty, but we love him out of delight because he has delighted in us first. And as we delight in him, what do you want to do with someone you delight in? You want to spend time with them. And when you want to spend time with someone, what do you do? You talk and converse with them. And so we then as believers who are communing with the Lord we want to hear from God, from this Father who loves us so. And so we open his word so that his word is spoken to us as we read his word. And then we return as we pray back to him. It's, it's a conversation, it's two-way communication. Bible reading and prayer is part of this communion with God. Not just dry duties that we perform. And yet we can wonder how can our love as as it is, as weak and mixed as it is, how can it be offered to God? It's through our union with Christ. How can we offer love that's acceptable to him? It's because we're united to Jesus. Owen again says, our love is fixed on the Father, but it is conveyed to the Father through the Son. Christ is the only way for our graces as well as our persons to go to God. Through him, all our desires and delights, our satisfactions and our obedience pass to the Father. Friends, Christ is truly the mediator. He mediates God's love to us and he mediates our love back to God. He stands in the gap for us. And so our salvation both our eternal security and our daily communion with Christ, daily communion with God is, is all because of Christ. It's because we're united to him that we are able to have communion with the triune God. We can experience his love, we'll offer our love back to him because of him. So I ask you, believer, do you daily commune with your God? Do you have this sort of relationship with him? Or has communion with him grown cold? Has it been maybe something that you've 
neglected? Has, have your spiritual disciplines turned into simply dry duties that you perform? Or maybe duties you've neglected? I encourage you, believer, look to the love of your Father and let that draw you towards his heart and draw you to spend time with him. Receive it by faith and offer your love back to him. His love for you is not dependent and does not fluctuate on your performance or your love back to him. You think, oh, God must be displeased with me because I've been so, I haven't been doing all that I should. I haven't been the great Christian that I should be. And so God's probably a little bit angry with me. And so I've got to do some more spiritual things in order to get him happy with me again. Friends, that's not resting in the gospel. That's going to a works-based salvation rather than a grace-based salvation that God has given it to you freely of his own free will. We rest in that. And as we recognize that love and that grace we've received, we then want to offer more to him. We want to spend time with this great God that somehow he loves me. I don't see it. It's not because of anything I've done, but wow, he's saved me and he loves me. Our heart is warmed as we look more upon the love of Christ in the gospel. So the first way that our union with Christ intersects our everyday and affects our daily spiritual life is first, it enables us to commune with God. Enables us to commune with God. But secondly this morning, I want to show how the second way that intersects our daily Christian life is that because we're united to Christ, you can daily defeat sin. You can daily defeat sin because of your union with Christ. Now, when we talk about the daily Christian life, we're talking about the doctrine of sanctification. Sanctification, a big theological term that simply means that it is about our growth in Christ-likeness. It's a lifelong process of becoming conformed to the image of Christ as God's grace works in us. We are conformed to the image of Jesus. We look more like him in our character and in our words, in our actions and decisions as we conform ourselves to his word and as God's grace by his spirit works in us. This process of being conformed to Jesus from being where we are today to being more like Jesus tomorrow or more like Jesus in 10 years or over the course of our lifetime involves both a negative and a positive aspect. There's the bad things, the sin that needs to be stopped, and there's the good things that need to be started. Pretty simple. And this is a basic principle of all change, right? I mean, if it's, uh, you want to eat healthier, you need to stop eating junk food and start eating the healthy stuff. Or take a salesman who's trying to get better at selling things. He needs to stop the behaviors that are getting doors slammed in his face and start adopting behaviors that enables contracts to be signed. There's a change, a negative and a positive that has to take place. And the same is true in our spiritual and moral change in the Christian life. The Bible calls this putting off and putting on, using the illustration of clothing. We've got to put off some things and we've got to put on other things. This process of putting off and putting on that is a process of putting off that which is... Uh, ungodly, that which is sinful, and putting on that which belongs to Christ. We put on the character and the attitudes and the behaviors and the speech of Jesus. 
And how is it that we can do this process? Why can we actually remove these things that are so natural to us? And why is it that we can add the things that are so unnatural to us? It's because we're united to Jesus. So, in this process of sanctification, we have the negative, we have the positive. Here in the second point, the daily defeating sin, I want us to, to look at this, this negative point of putting off. And then in our third point, we'll look at the put on. And so in regards to putting off sin, there's two components I want to highlight today. The first is mental and the second is volitional. The first requires a change of mind and the second a change of behavior. So in other words, if we're going to daily defeat sin because of our union with Christ, there's got to be a change of mind and then there's also got to be a change of behavior. First, this change of mind, number one, you need to consider yourself dead to sin. Consider yourself dead to sin. How do you daily defeat sin based upon your union with Christ? You've got to consider yourself dead to sin. And for that, let's turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. We looked at this some last week. It's a key passage for getting a foundation for our relationship to sin as believers in Christ. We've got to understand what took place in our salvation. Again, if you only think that salvation was you getting your ticket stamped for heaven and then you carry on, you are forgetting, you're neglecting, you're missing out on huge, great truths of what took place and therefore factor into how it can change your everyday. Paul wants us to get this in Romans chapter 6. So look at verses, uh, beginning in verse 1. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Friends, verse 2 Paul makes it very clear that we died to sin. And he asks the question, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And you go, well, sorry, Paul, I still sin, okay? So, uh, you know, you might ask the question, but I, 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 I do still, still live in it. He's not asking, how is it? He's not saying, hey, Christian, how is it that you can still sin? You've died to sin. No, he's saying, how is it that you can return to sins after you've died to it already? 
How is it that you can morally return to that sin and live in sin out of conscious uh, choice if you have died to it? It's morally, it doesn't, it doesn't fit. It's incongruous for a believer to return to sin if all of this has taken place. He says that in our baptism, we have died with Christ. We've died to sin. Do you not know that all of us, verse 3, have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? This is describing what we see in the waters of baptism, friends, that when we go under the water, that it shows our death with Christ. As we are there under the water, it signifies our burial with him. And as we come back up out of the waters, it shows our newness of life, the resurrection life that we have with Jesus. And this is what Paul is highlighting here. We were united to Jesus in his incarnation, as we talked about last week, when he went through his death, burial, and resurrection, but the Spirit applies it to us in our own lives and is enacted and illustrated through our baptism. And so, just, we've died to sin, we've been raised to new life, these are facts that God wants for you, that God has cured for you. And so, verse six and seven Paul says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Friends, the bondage of sin was broken through Christ. Because of his death, he took our sin upon himself. He paid the penalty for our sin. So the penalty of sin for you has been broken. You're no longer enslaved to sin. You're no longer uh, Tied to sin. You don't have to sin. You've been set free from the slavery of sin. When Christ died, our old self was killed. Verses 8 and 10 talk about how the death, of Je death and resurrection of Jesus were decisive events. These were things that actually took place and actually accomplished something. And so, Paul concludes in verse 11 you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus the key word here is consider as believers in Christ we must reckon ourselves as dead to sin that the power of sin in our lives has been killed now it's true that sin still has its way with us. We still have our old nature that's, that dwells within us and we'll talk about that, that there is this, this sin principle that we fight, that we battle. But our fundamental relationship to sin has changed and this is what Paul wants us to see. That our, we are now dead to sin. We don't have to obey it. Before, when we are in Adam, when we are without Christ, we have to obey sin. We have no power to do otherwise. But, in Christ, that power has been broken. Yes, we can still hear it. Yes, it still influences us, but we don't have to obey it any longer. We can set a new course. And that's why Paul goes on in verse 12 to say, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Pre present yourself to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have 
no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Because the fundamental relationship to sin has changed and that you have been set free from it, that you are dead to it, that you can now choose to not let sin reign in your life, to not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. You can chart a different course. And so in conclusion to this passage, author and pastor John Stott wrote the following words. He says, So the major secret of holy living is the mind. It's in knowing, first, that our former, former self was crucified with Christ. In knowing that baptism into Christ is baptism into his death and resurrection. And in considering that through Christ we are dead to sin and alive to God. These are things that we must know. He goes on to say we are to recall, to ponder, to grasp, to register these truths until they are so internal to our mindset that a return to the old life is unthinkable. Regenerate Christians should no more contemplate a return to unregenerate living than adults to their childhood, married people to their singleness, or discharged prisoners to their prison cell. For our union with Jesus Christ has severed us from the old life and committed us to the new. How can we possibly live again in what we have died to? You see Paul's point? It doesn't make sense that we would return to sin because Jesus has fundamentally changed our relationship to sin. It rewrites our history. We're changed from death to life. But sin is still powerful in our lives, isn't it? We still find ourselves tripped up. We still find ourselves going back to those same sin patterns that frustrate us time and again. And so not only are we to do what Paul says here, consider ourselves dead to sin, but the second thing we need to do to defeat sin through our union with Christ is to slay our sin. Slay our sin. So there's a mental aspect and now there's an action component. There's something we've got to do. We've got to kill it. Through our union with Christ, we've been set free from the dominion of sin and from its condemning power. We are no longer guilty under the law. Jesus paid the penalty. He paid it in full. We are no longer guilty. Amen and amen. But sin is still present in us. Even though the penalty has been removed, its power must still be fought on a daily basis. We will not be freed from the presence of sin until we reach heaven. Sin in the flesh that is in us is at war with the Lord and with the Spirit. Friends, sin never takes a day off. Sin is always there pressing at us to get us to disobey the Lord, to turn on our Maker, to turn on Christ. As John Piper once said, sin never wakes up tired. It is always there, always pressing, always seeking to undermine us. And so we must put it to death. We must be on a daily mission to put our sin to death. We're in daily hand-to-hand -hand combat with our flesh, with this indwelling sin that's in us. I guess this is John Owen Sunday because I... Uh, Referencing yet another book by him. First was Communion with God. Secondly is The Mortification of Sin. Both of these, as I say as a side note, are published by the Banner of Truth. In, uh, they've been put in some modern English and abridged. Very accessible for you. I'd, I'd recommend them to you. Communion with God and Mortification of Sin by John Owen. 
part of their Puritan paperback series. And he writes there about mortification. Mortification, a big long word that simply means to put something to death. To mortify something is to kill it. And so in this book, he writes this. He says, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Do you make it uh, your daily work? Do you do not take a, a day off from this work? Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. We find this duty given to us in the scriptures in Colossians chapter 3. And I invite you to turn there. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3, we'll pick up in verse 1. He says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here then is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, Barbithian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. What I want you to see is that verse 5 is the exhortation to put to death. Older translations say mortify. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. But notice the therefore in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Why is it therefore? Why does he say that? Because he's connecting it with the first four verses, which is all talking about our union with Christ. We have died with Christ. We have been raised with Christ. Therefore, we're to seek the things that are above. In other words, friends, the ability for you to be able to put to death the deeds of the body, the sin in your life, is directly related to your union with Christ. You cannot put to death what is earthly in you without first being united to him in his death, burial, and resurrection. And so we can only obey verse 5 if the first four verses are true. Only if we're united to Christ is the power of God through the Spirit available to us to put sin to death. And so as we are talking about growing in Christ. We are talking about putting on the character of Christ. But often we're not talking about killing sin. This idea of mortification, of putting sin to death is not a very popular thing in Christian circles today. You're not seeing a lot of books written on killing sin. We want the virtues of Christ. We want to change. We want to be better people. We want to have more love and more peace, less anger, less selfishness. 
But friends, our lusts, our desires of the flesh wage war against our soul. We can't just simply add on new behaviors without putting off the old ones. We must slay our sin if we're going to be more like Christ. Owen said in that book, Mortification of Sin, he says, let not that man think he makes any progress in holiness who walks not over the bellies of his lusts. A dramatic picture of the enemies being his lusts, his sinful desires of his flesh slain before him as enemies chop down in battle and he walks over them in order to get further on in Christ. Friends, it is a bloody, brutal battle in our fight against sin. And so, we need to ask ourselves, are we killing sin on a daily basis? Do we have it our goal to, to slay it? Or do we simply ignore it? Do we simply uh, coddle it? Do we make excuses for it? Oh, it's not that bad. Or, or maybe we think, oh, I'll do better next time. Yeah, I slipped up there. Yeah, I sinned there. But, but I've learned my lesson and, and, I, and I won't do it again. I know now. Friends, don't be deceived. Your, your flesh is a deceitful enemy. It may have been dethroned when Christ conquered your heart, but it has been thrown in the dungeon and is not yet completely slain. Your flesh still has an influential voice and we must work daily to put it to death, daily to ignore it, daily to shut it out and to fill our minds with truth rather than the lies of our flesh. It's there in the dungeon and it cries out and its voice is heard throughout the castle. And yes, Christ is upon the throne and we must listen to him and set our sights upon him and obey him. But the voice of our flesh is, is there going through the halls of our mind. Sometimes he whispers, sometimes he yells. But it's a voice we won't stop hearing until we're glorified. But friends, we can have the confidence that our sin will be done away with because we know Christ. We have his resurrection power at work within us and yet, unfortunately, many Christians leave that untapped. They don't lean into their union with Christ and thus they see the same sin patterns occur over and over again. Friends, indeed, our battle with sin is one that is ongoing throughout our lives. And I am not promising any measure of perfection if we would simply dwell on our union with Christ and bing, it's all gonna be better. But we can't make progress without resting upon Christ. And so we must make killing sin our daily occupation. But thirdly and lastly this morning, the third area in which our union with Christ intersects our daily life is the positive, the putting on. Because you're united to Christ, you can daily grow more like Christ. You kill sin, defeat sin, but you can also grow more like him. This is the other side of the coin. We've put off the old self. We've put on the new. You see, we're not just going to stop bad behaviors. We can't just say, oh, I'm not going to do that anymore. We've also got to add on Christ-honoring behaviors. How do we do this? How do we see spiritual fruit? How do you see Christ in you? It's by abiding in Christ. And this is where we're going to end this morning is in John 15. I encourage you to turn there. John 15. Here, Jesus introduces us to an illustration of our union with Christ that we have not yet mentioned. 
And that is the vine analogy. The vine analogy. Here, John records for us Jesus' words describing what our relationship with Christ is like. Jesus says, John 15, verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean, because the word of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. We'll stop right there. There are, first thing I want you to see in these verses is, is to see the close relationship between Christ and his people. What is the illustration? It's the vine and the branches. You can't get any closer than a vine, a branch that's growing out of a vine. In this case, I think we can, for the sake of, of what Jesus is talking about here, maybe think about it in terms of a grafted branch into the vine. A branch that's been added in, and the question is, is that branch that's been grafted in, is it going to bear fruit? Because the point is, is that when it's been successfully grafted, when it's there united to Christ the vine, there will be fruit. There is vitality, there is life that flows through that branch. And so here we get a beautiful illustration of this union with Christ. A branch that's connected to the vine. But secondly, I want you to see the goal of our relationship with Christ. And that is bearing fruit. Bearing fruit. It's, it's mentioned all throughout these verses. This is what Christ wants in us. Fruit, spiritual fruit, is the character of Christ in our hearts and obedience to Christ in our actions and words. It's when we begin to look like Christ in what we say and what we do and how we act. And so, if we are truly in Christ, we will bear fruit. So there's five things here I want you to notice about bearing fruit. The first is that spiritual fruit is the proof that we are Christ's disciples. Jesus makes that clear in verse 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Fruit proves discipleship. The second thing about this is that fruit is only possible by abiding in Christ. We can't bear fruit on our own. We cannot find the resources in us to simply be a better person, to be a better version of us. We need to be tied to Christ and only through him does spiritual life and power flow through us and enable us to produce spiritual fruit. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse five. Thirdly, how do we abide in Christ so that we bear fruit? We allow his word to abide in us. Verse seven. We abide in Christ and we allow his word to abide in us. And here we get to this connection with our Bibles and Jesus. We allow his word to dwell richly in us, Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. And as his word abides within us, then the spirit fills us and controls us and we live according to that word. 
Abiding in Christ is a word-centered exercise. But the fourth thing about bearing fruit is that the father prunes the branches so that they bear more fruit. Did you catch that? Verse two, he says, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Friends, this is, in this illustration, is a simple truth that God often brings hardship, difficulty, and suffering into our lives that is painful and yet is part of his pruning process in our lives, that we would bear more fruit. His providence brings suffering and trials. It hurts, but he's cutting off pieces of our character that, that aren't godly, that aren't right, and he wants to see that we bear more fruit. He wants us to be more productive, and so he does it for our good and for his glory. But the fifth and final thing I want to say about bearing fruit is found in verse two and verse six, and it's this. It's possible to look like a branch and yet not be united to Christ. It's possible to look like a branch and yet not be united to Christ. Jesus talks about those that are branches, that seem to be branches, that they're there, but they're not bearing fruit, and therefore there is consequences for them. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And verse 6, it says it's thrown away. It's withering because it's not united to the vine. It's not receiving the life sap from the source. Friends, this is a warning call to all those who claim to be Christians by profession and yet have no sign of spiritual life, that there is no fruit produced in your life. It does not matter what decision that you've made in the past. It does not matter what you profess with your mouth. Jesus says it must translate into changed behavior. If there is no fruit, there is no relationship to Christ. And so I ask you to examine yourself. Is there fruit in your life? Is there joy, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Is there a desire for spiritual things? Is there growing in holiness in your life? Are you more like Christ today than you were five years ago, ten years ago? Friends, if you cannot answer yes to those questions, then I exhort you to humble yourself and to recognize that you may not be united to Christ. You may not be in the vine. You may have been around the church for years. You may have talked about a lot of Christian things. But if there is no spiritual fruit, a change of your, your character and your behavior, then there's reason to question whether you truly know Christ. But the good news is you can know him today. That can all change right now by you crying out to him, humbling yourself and asking that he would save you, that he would change your affections, that he would make you a different person. It doesn't matter if you're 25 or 85. It doesn't matter if you're 15 or 50. You must come to the Savior confessing your sin and your inability to save yourself. You must surrender all of yourself to all of Christ and you'll experience the warm embrace of the love of God in the gospel. And so I encourage you, please talk to me or someone today that you might know if you are truly in Christ before you go home. Well, friends, we've examined this morning how our union to Jesus is not just something that affects our history and our past, but affects our everyday Christian lives. 
There, re there are real world, present day realities that come into play as a result of the union with Christ. Because you are united to Christ, you can commune with the God of the universe. You can daily defeat your sin and you can daily grow more like Christ. May God give us the grace to do these things even this week in the, his power. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege that we have to know you through Christ. Indeed, forgive us, Lord, that we have neglected your love, that we have failed to see you as you have revealed yourself, that we can get false views of you that distort your heart. And so I pray, Father, for us, your church, that you would help us to see you in all of your glory and in all of your love. May we recognize that you yourself love us and delight in us. And Father, may that spur our obedience and our love and our sin fighting this week that we might want to put you on display in our lives and we might want to delight in you as we go through our days. Father, equip us to be your ambassadors. For Christ's sake we pray, amen.